There's a world outside these doors that is not content with that which you identify yourself with when it comes to God's Word and His Son. And the world outside these doors will look to remove or modify, erase or displace your religious, your Christian attributes. The question we need to ask is, is the world succeeding? Have the claws of the world found its way into your life, into your flesh? Has Babylon got you? And if so, what do you do about it? How should we respond? How should God's people respond? Well, that, that is what we're going to see in the life of Daniel. For the prophet Daniel, living in Babylon could not have been easy. Daniel was a stranger in a strange land, and he had to live and act accordingly. Part one of our new series will consider the prophet's difficult situation. This morning on the way to church, I noticed a flock of birds. We were driving in, I noticed the flock just kind of fly right over the pavement there. Now, how did I know that they were birds and not something else? How did I know when I looked up that they were birds and they weren't sheep, they weren't cows, they weren't pigs? Well, I knew they were birds because I looked at their attributes. I looked at the birds and I saw things that told me that these were birds. Number one, they were flying. Their behavior was an identifier that told me what type of creature it was. Beyond that, I looked at the bird and I saw things like wings and feathers and beaks, distinctives, characteristics that are found really only in birds and not so much in the pigs and the cows and the sheep and the like. So I looked at the attributes to identify the creature. With that said, what would have happened if you were to remove a creature's attributes? What if you took those attributes away, perhaps replaced them with something else? What happens if all the attributes that make a creature or an individual distinct were removed or erased or modified? At the very least, it's a lot harder to identify the creature or the individual. In today's past, King Nebuchadnezzar is going to conquer a people who have certain identifiers, characteristics, attributes, and he's going to attempt to remake them. He's going to look to take one set of attributes and characteristics, flush them down the drain, and replace them with another set of characteristics forged in the fires of Babylon. So you see, the king in Daniel chapter 1, he looks at those that he's brought into his land. And he doesn't want men and women who retain their foreign priorities and principles. He wants those who will adapt his, who will be more like him. So this meant, as we're going to see in Daniel 1, this meant that upon conquering the Israelites, or those of Judah, upon conquering them, King Nebuchadnezzar is going to decree that everything about them must change. And Daniel 1, this pagan, depraved, fallen king of a pagan, depraved, fallen land is going to attempt to reprogram or replace the attributes of God's people with those of the world, with those of Babylon, so to speak. Well, as we talked about last week, the strategy of Babylon, so to speak, has not changed. Babylon still crouched at the door of God's people, looking to remake, looking to change. There's a world outside these doors that is not content with that which you identify yourself with when it comes to God's word and his son. And the world outside these doors will look to remove or modify, erase, or displace your religious, your Christian attributes. With the best, a watered-down version of these things, and at the worst, they'll look to remove them altogether. The question we need to ask is, is the world succeeding? Have the claws of the world found its way into your life, into your flesh? Has Babylon got you? That's another way I talk about these things. And if so, what do you do about it? How should we respond? How should God's people respond? Well, that. That is what we're going to see in the life of Daniel. A response to what it is like when godly people say in the midst of a pagan culture that we will not change. That we will hold to the attributes that make us who we are. If my identity, if my nature is that of Christ, if I have been remade, the world will not remake me in their image. I will be conformed into the word and image of Christ. 
We have to have the same approach as Daniel, so it helps us to study. All right, if you would, let's return to the first two verses from today's reading, because the first two verses help frame this concern that we might have against the scriptural backdrop. We'll look at the first two verses, and then we'll proceed through the text. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. You can have a full stop, double underline in that. This is not a coincidence. This is not happenstance. This is not an accident. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, lowercase g, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. All right, let's talk a little bit more about the historical context of today's passage. If you had studied the words of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Daniel, any of them, you would know that in the centuries prior to today's text, Israel, Judah had done messed up. A few centuries earlier, everything had been going great. Remember the time of, of David. This was kind of the high point of God's people, God's kingdom, the power of Israel. Well, in very short order, the kingdom was broken. It was divided. A divided kingdom. You had the northern kingdom of what? Israel. The southern kingdom of what? Judah. Right. The kingdom was divided. And both in the north and the south, especially in the north and some in the south, all manner of idolatrous practices ensued in the centuries that followed leading up to today's text. High places were put up to pagan deities. The people's hearts and minds drifted in all manner of different things. God's people could be incredibly fickle. The Pied Pipers of Prophecy could come on in and lure people off into other things. The Pied Pipers of Paganism could take God's people who knew better, who had wonderful men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and the like to lead them, and they'd nevertheless be led apart. They'd be led into foreign beliefs, foreign lands. Well, God tells his people through the prophets that if you like foreign nations so much, if you like their God so much, if you desire to be like them, to be immersed in a worldview like they have, God tells them, I can arrange that. That's what happened at the start of Daniel 1. So that's what happened in the centuries leading up to this. The nation had been split in two. The people had drifted into all manner of wickedness. God's people were a hard-hearted bunch. And in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, who was not a good king, the discipline, the refinement, the chastening of God came crashing down. And it was not a cosmic surprise because the prophets had been saying this day was coming. Oh, ye Israel, change your way. And yet they had not. This is what God said he would do. He raised up King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Sounds like a band name. But King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, he raised them up and over a period of three separate assaults, spanning about 15, 20 years or so, the Babylonians, in time, they finally conquered Jerusalem. And ultimately, they destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. With that said, in today's text, we're looking at the first of the assaults. It's the first time they were besieged, so to speak. The first set of exiles being removed. So that's what we're looking at in today's text. When Nebuchadnezzar first besieged Jerusalem, and he takes away the first batch of exiles, the best and the brightest, which included men like Daniel, the men we know as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now when foreign nations conquered other foreign nations in times of antiquity, one of the reasons they conquered the nation was to take what the nation had. They would go into a nation and they'd take the best and brightest people, they'd take all the resources, they'd take all the gold, they took stuff from out of the temples, they'd take all the stuff back to their own land. Now, Daniel was one of the best and brightest people that Judah had to offer, so that's one of the reasons he was in the first batch of exile. Now, another thing that victorious nations tended to do was to take the idols and the temple artifacts and the like from a defeated nation back to their own. And once they took, once, say, one pagan nation conquered another pagan nation, 
This pagan nation would take all of the temple artifacts and the idols and the like back to theirs and lay them down, usually prostrate before their god. If you think back, remember the Philistines. They once stole the Ark of the Covenant. What did they do with it? Well, they put it right in the Temple of Dagon. Now, those who know that story know that that didn't turn out too well for the Philistines. It wasn't exactly a Raiders of the Lost Ark sort of moment, but it was similar. It didn't work out too well for the Philistines. Nevertheless, this is what pagan nations tend to do. They would take the artifacts and idols from displaced, defeated nations. They'd pull them into their kingdom. And this was a way of saying that we're better than you, we're greater than you, and more importantly, that our God is greater than you. Because guess whose temple he's now in? So that was what took place. What better way of saying that our gods are better than your gods than raiding their temples and their enemies and laying down their idols at the feet of your own deity. That ritual of conquest is what verses 1 and 2 are describing. That's what is taking place. Now, before we move on to the next few verses, I want you to notice one other thing. I highlighted it before, but I want to linger on it for a moment. In verse 2, we read that the Lord gave the king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. We cannot lose sight. We cannot lose sight of the fact that none of this was happening by an act. God didn't wake up in heaven one day and go, oh, my stars, what, what has Nebuchadnezzar done? Oh, what am I going to do now? That's not what happened. He wasn't wringing his hands about this. In fact, he had turned Jehoiakim and Judah into the hands, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. The greatest calamity that Jerusalem ever faced, at least up to that point, the greatest calamity that Jerusalem had ever faced came about because God brought it about. The greatest calamity that God's people, God's children, his elect, ever faced about because God brought about. Why? Why? And we'll get into that here in a few moments, but I'll say this much. God allowed his own city, his own temple to, to be raised to the ground. If, if that doesn't tell you about the lengths that he's willing to go to judge sin and to reconcile sinners, then you'll never understand Calvary. The lengths God is willing to go. God can and does use circumstances you would never expect, like bring the Babylonians into Jerusalem in order to bring about great and wonderful ends. Let's look at verses 3 through 7 now. Verse 3. Then the king, this is Nebuchadnezzar, instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. And for three years they were trained, so at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now among those among those were the sons of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And to them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. All right, as we said before, after the first assault of Jerusalem, the Babylonians not only took the city's things, but it took the city's people. However, when they took the city's people, they didn't just go look for the village idiot. They didn't just take anybody up. They went and sought the best. They wanted the, the rocket scientists, so to speak, of this century. They wanted the best and the brightest. Verse 4 says that they were looking for those who were gifted in wisdom and knowledge and quick to understand. Now, the young man that we know is Daniel. Evidently, he fit the bill. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Menahem, they fit the bill. However, when they were taken and moved into Babylon, although they were certainly provided for with food that even the king ate, even though they were provided for in Babylon, were they left to find their own way in Babylonian society? Were they left alone? Well, not in the least. We discussed earlier, not in the least. 
It said the king, as we saw in verse 3, instructed the master of his eunuchs to see that these young men were conformed to the ways of Babylon. He says, these men are my trophies. I have taken through the power of my hand. I will remake them in my image. They'll eat the food I eat. They will drink what I drink. They will speak what I speak. They will read what I read. And they'll be all the more effective ambassadors for me in my kingdom. So these men, these young men, they were castrated. They were reprogrammed. They were renamed. This was forced assimilation. Now, with regard to their names, in verses 6 through 7, we see again that their previous Jewish names, their Hebrew names, which all had special significance to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, they were all repurposed because that's one of the things you do. When you want to change a person's identity, at least in this era, what you started with was you change their name. This is a concept that even has a good biblical foundation. Saul became Paul and the like. Well, that's what happened here. In order to, to, to identify this person is changed, they are to be renamed. So their names are repurposed to have pagan meanings where they once had good, solid, biblical meaning. For example, the name Azariah, which meant God has helped in Hebrew. God has helped. What a great name. It was a change to Abednego, which means servant of the god Nebo. We go through the other names, but it's all the same. Hebrew solid biblical names that espouse something about the attributes of God and his relationship to the people were changed to have pagan, wicked meanings and purposes. So you have new names. They have a new language, they have new everything. Now, this concept is no different. If you take away nothing else today, take away this. This concept of the world looking to remake the Christian in our church age, to remake the Christian in the, in the image of the world, this, this isn't changed. The world outside these doors isn't neutral to what goes on inside these doors. Maybe in the, in the Bible Belt, we can delude yourself to thinking differently, but the reality is the world outside these doors is not neutral to what goes on inside these doors. The world outside these doors is not content to live and let live. And if you think they are, just study the national conversation from about the past 25 years, and you'll see that they're not. The world outside these doors is not content to, to allow the, the church to be the church. The world outside these doors has two outcomes in mind. Number one, the world will make you in their own image. Or they'll break you and try. That's the two outcomes. And ultimately, that's the alternative that will be positioned squarely, perhaps through persecution, before believers just like you and I. The world will try to remake God's own, God's elect, God's sons, God's daughter into worldly variations, or it will break God's people in trying to. Now, ironically, sometimes, sometimes the church can play into that hand. And too often, I told you this was a segue, so I'll linger here for a moment. But too often, we think that evangelizing the Babylonians, so to speak, means that we have to take on Babylonian adjectives and characteristics. In modern evangelicals, has that not been the way, has that not been what we've done? Let me ask you, is 21st century North American Christianity better known for holiness, better known for being set apart, better known for being a city on a hill, or, or, for attempting to be more like the world around us with the thought that that's going to help grow the kingdom. What is 21st century evangelical, North American evangelical Christianity more like? That which is attempting to be set apart, is attempting to be holy, is attempting to be godly and the like, attempting to be Christ-like, or just taking on worldly attributes because we think that will make us more relatable, because we think that's where we will grow the kingdom, because we think that's the way it should work. I mean, at least Daniel, at least he was forced to do this sort of thing Against his will, but so much of the modern church is just eager, hellbent, you could say, on dressing and acting and living and, and teaching the, the tropes of Babylon. With the idea that acting like goats will multiply sheep. 
It doesn't end well. It doesn't end well. Because of this, you know, the Nebuchadnezzars of our age don't even have to try that hard when it comes to assimilation. Because sometimes we're tripping over ourselves to be more like that, more like the world around. If you do that, as an individual or as a church, you do that, as an evangelical, what's left to evangelize? What good news is, it remains? What's left to share if you empty out all the distinctive of who we are in Christ? Holiness is not about complicity with the world. It's not about slouching towards Gomorrah. That's not the way that things work. Holiness is about being set apart. The lesson I think Daniel would want to tattoo on our hearts and on our minds this day. Holiness involves being set apart in whatever environment. All right, let's look at verses 8 through 14 now. But Daniel purposed in his heart. He was intentional. He was proactive. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacy, nor with the wine which the king drank. Therefore, he requested to the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. God's coming on his side and clearing the lanes for Daniel, for his child. So God brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear, my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? In other words, he's saying, Daniel, if you don't want to eat what the king eats, and the king finds out, and you look less healthy as a result of it, it's going to be on me. He says then in, in verse 10, you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs has said over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, notice here that we see the Hebrew names advocated, verse 12, please test your servants for 10 days. And let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. And so the chief of the eunuchs consented with them in this matter and they tested them for, for 10 days. Have you, have you ever heard of something? I'm, I'm genuinely eager to see a response. Have you ever heard of something called the Daniel Diet? Ever heard of this? Well, I, I see a couple of hands. I I didn't know this this existed. I, apparently, I don't drift into the weight loss section of the bookstore all that much. But there's this thing out there called the Daniel Diet. For this is the worst hermeneutic of all time. The Daniel Diet, and the Daniel Diet presumes to look at the same verses we just read and say it's all about health and, and nutrition. That that's what we're supposed to extract here. That vegetables and water, less carbs and the like. That that's what this text is about. In other words, the takeaway, and some have when they look at these verses, is, is that it's not so much about how to live as holy set-apart people, it's how to reject carbs and saturated fat. Now, eating less carbs may be a good plan. I'm, I'm trying. Maybe a good plan. But that's not the focus of the passage. For the love of Pete, that's not the focus. To put it simply here, Daniel's focus here, should not, we should not extract a brand new diet as a result of looking at this text. Daniel's request for vegetables and water wasn't the advent of some new breakthrough in science. It was because he didn't want to defile himself by eating of the same food as the king of Babylon. Daniel was concerned about being set apart. He was concerned about holiness, not having to trim physique. Now, were there other foods? Were there certain foods that were holy and some that weren't? Could that have been the reason? Could Daniel have said, well, these foods aren't prepared the way that our law said they'd be prepared? We can't eat certain things. May that have been the reason why he didn't want to defile himself? Possibly. A lot of scholars think that's the case. I don't want to explore that at a great length for time here. But at the end of the day, I think that Daniel's main point, his main reason for this request, and his main reason for, for making his stand, 
was to say that God alone is the provider, the sustainer of life. The king thought he was going to provide from his own table and sustain the, the life and growth and the foundation of these young men by rejecting that. I think Daniel's saying that God alone is my provider, my sustainer. Even if I have to eat just vegetables and water, which sounds dreadful to me, even if I have to eat that, he says that'll be enough. He says that, that which you would ordinarily not think would result in more robust strength and fitness and the like, that God will use even this. And so he says, test it, try it out. You'll find it's true. Rejecting the king's food is one way to demonstrate that God alone was his provider and his sustainer. Okay, let's look at verses 15 through 17 to see how that turned out. Verse 15. And at the end of ten days, their features, meaning the features of these young men, appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. And as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill and all literature and wisdom. Notice it's God who does. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to train them and teach them and the like, but God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in vision and in dreams. Now, when Daniel made his initial request, as we discussed a few moments ago, the chief of the eunuchs thought he was crazy. Vegetables and water don't, don't make you more healthy, at least in isolation. They certainly don't make you bigger or, or fatter, but at the end of the ten days, that's what happened. Daniel and his, and his cohorts here, Daniel and his friends, were, were, were stronger, were more fit, healthier of skin and, and complexion than those who were eating the richest foods in the world at that time. Contrary to expectations, if you're standing back and just observing this, contrary to expectations, God did something that defied what the chief eunuchs would have thought would have occurred, and he honored, God honored Daniel's faith and brought about an outcome that no one would have seen coming. That's one tiny way in which God is going to preserve and sustain those faithful few, that faithful remnant living in exile. We're going to see a fiery furnace a few chapters from now. And say, lion's den. Guess what? God's going to preserve them there too. God, although he's allowed and permitted and decreed his people to go into exile, he would not leave them alone. And things great and things small, God would intervene at every corner for the welfare of those that he loved. Now, another way that God intervened was he gave his people gifts. He gave them certain gifts and skills in areas of literature, wisdom, visions, and dreams. Now, those gifts, especially with regards to visions and dreams, are going to come in very handy next week when we study chapter 2. We're going to see very interesting how these gifts are put to use. But with our remaining verses, let's look at verses 18 through 21 now. Verse 18. Now, at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, this is three years later, At the end of the days, when the king said they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them. How forbidding that must have been. The king interviewed them, and among them all, among all those they interviewed, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. In all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Then Daniel continued for the first year. Of King Cyrus. All right, after this period of re-education had gone by, Daniel and the others, they are brought before the king in order that the king himself might test them, might question them. These men, remember, they were considered trophies from his previous conquest, 
And after the chief of the eunuchs had polished these trophies, so to speak, the king wanted to recline and sit back and, and see how these men had been remade in the image of himself, really. So that's the, his desire here. And he wanted to see what kind of value. What would they bring now that they'd been kind of polished and buffed and now they understood more of Babylonian culture and the arts and literature and all that sort of thing. What kind of value would they bring to this kingdom? What, what sort of assets were they going to be? Well, verse 20 says that in matters of wisdom and understanding and the like, these young men, they were ten times better than all the magicians, all the eggheads in all of Babylon. Despite eating nothing but vegetables and water, despite undergoing forced castration, despite re-education, despite assimilation, despite conditions and circumstances you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy, God's people came out stronger at the end. God was with them. He preserved ever bit as much as God preserved Noah and his family in the midst of an ark and the raging waters they're out. God preserves his people in hardship. If it's true of them, it's true of us too. The hardships we might be undergoing are probably different. I hope a lion's den isn't in our future. So it's probably a little bit different than what Daniel and his uh, and his colleagues underwent here. But nevertheless, God preserves his own. Particularly when we trust in him. When we trust in our, he loves to validate our faithfulness. He loves to validate our prayer life. He loves to do these. In the case of Daniel and his friends, in the midst of terrible circumstances, he saw them through. And it was stronger than, than all the other men of Babylon combined at this, at this point. And that's where chapter one closes. Says that Daniel, he continued to thrive until the first year of Cyrus. That's 66 years later. Daniel would spend effectively his whole life in this circumstance. Sometimes we complain that we spend a, a week in a miserable circumstance or a month or a season. Daniel spent effectively his whole life in this setting. And yet he preserved. God preserved it. As we look to wrap up this morning, let me offer a closing exhortation. Sometimes the book of Daniel is preached with the emphasis that you and I should dare to be a Daniel. To dare to be a Daniel. In other words, sometimes today's text is preached as a moralism. And that's dangerous. It's not bad to look at Daniel and say, yes, he did some things and he had some behaviors that we should emulate. And yet, if that's all we see when we come to the book of Daniel is how strong Daniel was, we're missing the point. The book of Daniel is not about Daniel. Who's it about? Yeah, it's about God, like every other book. At the very start of chapter 1, we read that God gave Judah. He gave Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like he gave them over to Babylon. Right from the very start, God is the main mover of everything that happened in chapter 1, and it's going to be true in chapter 2, 3, and on through the book, on through all the scripture. And what we see in Daniel is that a lot of times things happen that I can't imagine Daniel himself was a big fan of. Lions dens, fiery furnaces, the forced castration, assimilation, all this. This was, this is bad. I mean, there's no other way you can't put a shiny smile on this. This is bad stuff. And yet, again, God was with them. And more to the point, he decreed that those things would happen. That can be the hardest thing for us. We like the idea God's with us in times of trouble. What we like less is the idea that he appointed the time of trouble. That's where our theology gets a little bit shaky. Sometimes God will decree things that we as a people or as a church don't want, don't like. But God knows that what we don't like can be what we most need. God's people had gone astray. They needed correction. And as we said, the Babylonian exile should tell us a lot about the lengths that God is willing to go to discipline, judge if need be, but ultimately to reconcile his people. Because if God was willing to see his own temple destroyed in doing so, if he was willing to see his own city destroyed, his own temple destroyed, his stuff hauled off to Babylon, if God is willing to do that, 
If God's willing to do that with regard to his own nation, why would any nation or any people think they could escape a similar outcome when they've turned away from it? The bad news is that God's people sometimes need to undergo a season of refinement, and that's what begins in Daniel chapter 1. But the good news is this, that although God was willing to exile his people to Babylon, although he's willing to do this, God didn't leave his people in Babylon. It was a short season, all things considered. God does not leave his people to toil in the valley of the shadow of death forever. He does not leave us to toil in the valley of the shadow of death for all of our days, nor does he leave us alone when we're in it. That's what the psalmist said. He said we can be comforted even in Babylon, even in the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Because thou art with me. Thou art with me. Whatever we're facing this week, whatever diagnosis, whatever hardship, whatever pain, thou art with me. That's an encouragement. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were never alone in the midst of what they went through, even if they found themselves immersed in the most pagan of settings, even if they found themselves thrown into a fiery furnace, even if there was a lion's den in their future. The story of Daniel is the story of a God who stands with his own, who stands with his people. The story of Daniel is the story of a God who stands with his children and upholds them in the face of whatever the world can throw their way. This God stands with his people still. Let's pray. The Bible says that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word. If today's sermon's been helpful or encouraging for you, then check back tomorrow for another study of God's Word.